0: listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Starting this week, May 4th, Thursdays from 1 to 4 p.m., is the new course DIR 120 Choosing Play, Setting Up for Success Across the Lifespan. For three Thursdays, we will review Season 1 of We Chose Play and discuss each episode, including questions and answers, reflection, and action steps to support your floor time experience. Here's your chance to view the documentary series you've heard about but haven't yet had a chance to watch. Look at affectautism.com under events. Also coming up on Wednesday, May 31st from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, I'll be holding my course, Be Sure, DIR 402, Supporting, Understanding and Respecting the Expectations of Parents for Practitioners. Children tend to be the topic of therapeutic intervention, but a good intervention depends entirely on their caregivers. This three-hour course will explore the relationship with caregivers in the process of a client relationship. Topics covered will include the spectrum of parents, meeting parents where they are by understanding their process and their journey, and how you can be the supportive and understanding practitioner whom caregivers trust and feel confident in. This course will help you raise your awareness and build your capacity for respecting the spectrum of families you see in your practice. To see the learning objectives or to find out how to get continuing education credits, go to affectautism.com under the events tab or at icdl.com under the courses tab. Hello, I'm Daria Brown back with Maude LaRue, occupational therapist, DIR expert training leader. She is uh, a trainer in other methods as well, uh, has the Maud LaRue Academy, created a total approach um, where they, it's a floor time clinic in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, where I've brought my son many times over the years, not since before COVID. He definitely misses school camp, Ms. Maud. Um, <laughs> we have done so many podcasts together, Maud, and uh, we, we haven't done the tactile system or the sense of touch. So that's today's topic. Welcome back, Mon.
1: Well, thank you for having me back. That's so awesome. And yes, we didn't do this system, because this system is such a very big cue for many, many other pieces, including the way that I experience myself as a body, the body awareness piece, right? So I don't know where you want me to kind of get going. So I'll just maybe kind of start with the fact that there is kind of a fancy term that they call the somatosensory system. So it's in the touch system has got various different components. That's all under this umbrella of the somatosensory system. And so part of it is that you have an extraceptive system where information is coming and touching on me. And that system is then alerting me. Oh, somebody's just touched me. There's a fly on my leg. I have to swat it away, right? And then there's the... The proprioceptive system, which we've also dealt with a little bit when we talked about the vestibular system. So it also has a compatriot type of a a role to play in the somatosensory system. And so there's a huge connection between um, that piece as well with body awareness, as we talked about uh, when we did that podcast. And then there's also the whole idea about the interoceptive system that actually we can do a complete separate one podcast on, but I know you already did one on interception with somebody Yes, else.
0: with Dr. Ira Glavinsky. And he talked a lot about Kelly Mahler's work, who's also an occupational
1: therapist. And I think that that's a worthy, if anybody hasn't seen that one, please watch that one because I cannot do it justice in the time that we have today in talking about all these pieces. But it's a very, very big cued system. In fact, for those of you who may be aware of something called the polyvagal system of Stephen Porges, um, I think... When he talks about neuroception, every time he talks about neuroception, I sort of transpose it with the word interoception, because a lot of what he's talking about is the way that my body experiences the social engagement system, the way that my body responds from this vagus nerve, which is why it's polyvagal system and interception is all about that vagus nerve it's if we're talking the same pieces we're just coming from different angles um, and I, I think it'll be interesting to sometime have a webinar with porges where we put these two together as a panel maybe thought yeah thought. and
0: i did do a podcast with dr porges on polyvagal theory so i'll put that in the link in the blog post for today as well
1: beautiful and i think to have sometimes a pa- uh, sometime in the future a panel with with people talking about interception from the ot lanes, talking it from the polyvagal lens i think could be an amazing podcast because there's so many linkages there in yes. fact when i train on interception i have a whole 90 minute section in my day training just on polyvagal and the connections that it makes to interception um so what the touch system does it it has a million receptor fields across the body. And, you know, I think all of you have probably seen a child that may have been tactile defensive, right? And that doesn't like it when you're touching them. Um, um, But then sometimes you see them touch the very things that we wanted them to touch, but they're touching it when they can themselves touch it, right? And you have all these little anomalies. While the touch system is incredibly emotional, And it really comes, it harkens back to the period of almost in utero and the safety of the the mother's womb uh, with the amniotic sac around the baby, enveloping the baby. And in fact, when you start feeling that baby kicking against the stomach area, right, um, that's also when the baby is practicing proprioception, by the way, and practicing how to push it and that's why ot's when you see ot's work they often let the the kid push against a ball and we're giving it resistance right so when you see that aha and now you know they they're activating proprioception and proprioception is the way that when my body moves through space it tells me it tells me in my joints where my body now is and how it's moving basically um so exteroception is then all the influences coming from the side So when we are touching our child with a little bit of a too light touch and the child's like, don't touch me, right? Um, That kind of heavy response, that's part of the, can I say, the, the, the modulation response to the system. It's a very crude pathway. There's three big pathways in the brain. For for touch, and that the crude pathway is the one that is more the tactile defensive pathway, and basically they use the crude pathway when they haven't completely developed the fine discrimination pathway, and so oftentimes kids who are not finely discriminating their touch system will often also present with a tactile defensive system. Doesn't always have to be, but very often correlates. So,
0: so- let's de- let's let's define that. Um- I, I will link to a podcast I did with uh, Stephanie Peters and Courtney St. Germain, both OTs, um, and they talked about discrimination. Um, but my understanding as a, a lay parent who doesn't know anything about OT, except what I've learned from you, is that um, I may not notice the difference between something rough and smooth. I, I just feel something. And once you learn to discriminate more, you can you know, fine tune, oh, this is rough. This is smoother.
1: That's right that's right and it 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 changes the way that you look at objects so you know what the baby does everything goes to the mouth in the beginning of life right um and and everything goes with where where i can reach and touch and i'm exploring things that exploration and what that exploration tells the brain is incredibly important and so when you have a child with touch issues and you're giving them something new and novel to explore Give them time to explore it before you think of using it, right? So if they're going to play with, if they're going to use a spoon for the first time, allow them to play with it first, let them learn the properties of it. What does it feel like in their hands? Um, and what does it feel like when I touch it this way? What does it feel like when I'm touching it this way? Because all of that exploration is feeding that discriminatory system to understand, okay, so when I now see a spoon, I can almost feel the touch of it. That connection between what I'm seeing and what my touch system is doing is at a very pristine little place in the brain called the superior colliculi. But that, that translating point in the brain is where it actually overlaps that when I'm touching something, I can touch it and I don't have to see it. I can know in my mind's eye what I'm seeing. And so a lot of your object constancy is what everybody talks about in, in mental health literature is coming from this touch exploration and how it then talks to this is the touch and the feel, this is what I see. Um, and so and the relationship between those things. So why is that necessary to know quickly is if I don't have that, it's difficult for me to learn how to use the tool in a practic way.
0: Okay, so I'm thinking of three things. Let's see if I remember all three. The first thing is, I just sort of want to summarize for people listening uh, and reinforce if all they heard was gobbledygook with all these fancy (laughs) words. Um, When my son was little and and still to this day, to a certain extent, he craves proprioceptive input. So, you know, he was too, he was walking around, uh, sliding his shoulder against the wall as he walked somewhere. He'd squeeze in between to couch a couch and a chair that were pushed together he'd squeeze in there he liked being in snug places he loved the um what's that material lycra material swing where it comes around he loves being in the pool uh feeling the water around him so that's proprioception but it's related to touch obviously because this stuff is touching his skin so that's the first point that you had made uh which
1: you may go somewhere with Okay. So if, if you just take the touch piece, that's extraception. If he uses the touch to push against, like resist it, it goes into proprioception.
0: Got it. Okay, perfect. The second thing is a lot of parents of autistic kids will notice that our kids aren't babies anymore, but they're putting everything in their mouth. So my son- Right after his brain inflammation inflammation at 28 months for the next year or two or three, everything was in the mouth first. So it's like developmentally, he went back where a baby is exploring everything with his mouth.
1: That's right. Very important phases, you know, and, and the question always is, well, do I allow that? Is that a, is that a quote unquote negative behavior or is that a behavior? Um, I would say, yes, it's a behavior, but it's not necessarily negative. The um a lot of and it has many different origins, because the touch system is so incredibly emotional, and so connected to the emotional centers in the brain. Putting something to the mouth can be a reminder of mommy's um, breast when they were younger, when they were soothed and calmed by it. It could be a reminder of the pacifier that they that they used in order to soothe and to calm, and so when they are stressed, they may tend to chew on shirts a little bit more and put things to the mouth a bit more because they want that, they want that that reminiscence, that, that memory of, okay, this is this feels good. And so once the the subconscious brain, with the first time I put something to my mouth, mm-hmm. even when I'm five, six, seven, um, puts it to my mouth and my subconscious brain reminds me, oh, this feels good because of those early life experiences that's still in your brain. Now kids sort of go back to that and then they use that in overdrive. It can be very disconcerting for parents and it's only one reason, but it's a very big one, a very big one for our kids. Um, does that, does that make sense? Daria? Yeah.
0: And, and I have a master's in psychology. So Freud is coming back in my head where the child is orally fixated. So, you know, cigarette smokers, they'll say oh, oral fixation. Um, you know, it's not just, so there's two different things. It's not just, um, exploring objects with his mouth, my son. But as we saw in We Chose Play, for those people that saw the series, Maude recently saw uh, season one and and took my course at ICDL about it. Thank you. That was awesome having you there. Um, We went through and and I did an episode about his sensory motor profile with another OT at ICDL, Gretchen Kamke. And she mentioned in some of the videos where my son was very upregulated. And she said, maybe that's why he's putting his hand in his mouth because he was so excited he wants to stay in that interaction that he's having so much fun with the other person he's having so much fun he needs to stay in it but it's so hard for him because he's upregulated so he starts putting his hand in his mouth which is a little bit different that's what you talked about the soothing behavior um and then um and then yeah and that those that was it and he bites his nails all the time as do i
1: (laughs) and that's all connected you know, there's no behavior that's not connected to some kind of an origin somewhere. Um, and what and the amazing thing about our brains are is that our brains remember every single experience we've had in our lives from in utero. We may not always physically recall it, but it's in our subconscious brain. So it works in our favor, but it also sometimes does not because when I have didn't have good experiences with certain things before and you come and something looks like, that negative experience then that becomes what we would call a trigger for avoidance behavior, right um So it's it's so um it's so all interlinked this whole piece. Um, and so when parents look at this, I can understand they need to get the shirt out of the mouth to get the objects out of the mouth. I get that. Um, if we're going to do that, if we focus on that just as the behavior, you will just start seeing it popping out in a different behavior. So the, the best thing to do is to see what other soothing regulation can I, or activity, can I replace that behavior with? Or can, you know working with an OT to get the need for that to diminish or decrease over time, um, and, and then we can work on getting away from needing that. So when I we do a combination of strategy and also bottom-up um, sensory integration therapy, we can see that the child naturally starts decreasing the need to go there, without us even paying undue attention on it. And so if we also remember, maybe, um, and tell me, Daria, if I'm going too fast, but in that piece, I'm always so um, aware. When families come to me, they will most of them would have tried to get the hands out of the mouth, would have tried to get the shirts out of the mouth um, by sort of can I say behavioral strategy. But what often happens if the child gets the message that something they're doing is quote unquote wrong or not right or not pleasing, right? It almost increases the anxiety and the need to do it, right? So it's it it becomes like the parent is like, "What do I? I've tried everything, Mom. I've tried everything." And you're like, "Okay, so let's just settle back here. Let's just go back to the very beginning."
0: Let's also rule out a couple other things because you know my child. I went through all these stages with my child. Yes, mouthing objects to explore. Yes, regulation. But also teething. That's right. When they're teething um, and then when the molars come in, it happens again a few years later. So constantly biting stuff and that. But also um, you brought up a good point with my son. At some point, he, I forget what behavior he was doing related to stuff in the mouth. And you pointed out, he's starting to um, his, uh, I don't know what you said, but his senses inside his mouth as he's starting to speak more. Or right. uh, awakening, and maybe he needed that input. Can you describe that part?
1: Yeah. So, so, and and thank you for reminding me. We only kind of covered the one part, the regulatory part, right? But this is the discriminatory part. So, coming back to that piece again, you have a tremendous amount of proprioceptor inputs here in the jaw and the facial area that's going to give you the final discrimination to speak in an articulated way, right? But as you also have a lot of receptors in your hands for the finer dexterity work that you're supposed to be doing. And that discrimination calls on um, a lot of, of course, input in order to make it work and operate. And so if your oral awareness has been limited in development, because of maybe not speaking as much as somebody else, maybe not chewing the same way others do. Maybe you never developed the postural control you needed in order to get to the jaw control, in order to create this opening for the speech piece to to be articulated. Um, Since feeding and articulation goes, I mean, the development of that is so hand in hand. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from my speech language pathologist about how overlapping that piece is. And so when the child then suddenly gets to the place where speech is starting to make sense, that they're listening to their own voice and they're able to, to, to hear themselves speak, and they now sort of feeling the feedback now about what does it feel like when I say puh, puh, Where am I And I can have the the same as body awareness, which is the big piece of tactile right? We have this awareness. Where's my tongue? Where's it? Where's Where's all those pieces? And when I can start becoming more aware, then it's almost like, okay, feed that system, feed that system. And that's when we start seeing an uptick. So not all behavior has got the same reason as the child develops through um, the continuum of development. And I think some parents are so worried sometimes. They come to me, there's a lot of oral mouthing and it goes away for a long period of time and nobody really um, is worried about it. And then at some point the parent calls me, it's back, we're regressing, it's back. "Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh, the brain always remembers. Regression is only really possible with blunt force brain injury or there's a diagnosis there that causes regression but neuroplastic brains, which we all have, only moves forward, okay? So it's not that you lose the skill, it's that the skill is going into recess, that when challenge happens, the skill goes into the subconscious and it's difficult to retrieve the same skill, especially when it's newly learned skill, right? And so what I often then do is I do a little bit of um, digging, and I think about things that's changing, think about things that are happening. And what you can usually see um, is that when you see this uptick in this kind of behavior, you can usually see other things that's growing. And they say, ah, oh, okay, so that's that's the cost now. The cost is now, this is coming back to support this new growth That's also stressful. Even though it's growth, it's still stressful to the nervous system. And what the nervous system remembers is that when I feel this sympathetic arousal of anxiety coming up, this is what I do. Oh, where's something to put in my mouth, right? And it's, you know what? Don't you and I do it? When I'm at a long day conference, particularly when it's a boring speaker, what do I do? Okay, what can I snack on? Crunchy stuff, sour stuff. Coffee. Okay, maybe another coffee, caffeine, keep me stimulated, right? Um, because the mouth area for all of us have the reminiscence of a pleasing type of experience.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a better example than the one I was just going to share. But I think my example makes the other point that you were saying. Um, let's say for some reason you had to learn a fancy dance step choreography, yeah. like yeah. maybe your your sister, brother, kid, cousin, granddaughter, whatever is getting married and you're doing some dance as part of the ceremony, I don't know, at the reception. And you have to memorize all these choreographed steps and you've sort of just learned it. Or maybe you go to Zumba class and you learn the Zumba steps that the teacher teaches you. Um, And then all of a sudden, something really stressful happens or something's going on. You're not gonna, and you're trying to do these dance steps. You're not gonna remember those dance steps. You're going to try and, you know, you're going to be distracted. So in that's maybe not the greatest example. But like you said, if the if the parents think that their child has regressed, no, no, it's just that they're learning this new skill, something else is coming on, maybe they're teething, they have a bad cold, they're going through the flu, they're going through COVID. Uh, One parent and parent support group's child just had a horrible case of hand foot and mouth disease, I think it's called and the child seemingly has regressed for like three months. And it's it's very concerning to the parent, but the child's sense of safety was so robbed mm-hmm. from the child uh, during that awful experience yeah. Yeah. that they're resorting to all these old behaviors.
1: That's right. That is so right. Um, and it's a very tough, it's a what it's a tough one for parents, you know, because parents like you, you invest so much. It's not just the financial investment, it's the time investment, it's the emotional investment. And you want to trust these professionals to to do the job they want to do and and you're getting somewhere and you see the goalpost, you you're seeing it, and then suddenly one day it's like what they start is- wetting the bed again or that's right. And what happened? What happened to my baby? Right? And so now we like fear. We always fear. And I, and we professionals, we're responsible for this, for this fear that parents have. It's not a real fear, everyone. The fear is more of an emotional one because we want so much for our child to get to a good place and to get to a place where they don't have to struggle so hard, right? We do want that. And because of that, the fear... That that's not going to happen is elicited by this seeming regression, right? Recognize it for what it is. Take a deep breath and say, okay, is there anything else in his life or her life right now that's changing? Is there a changed teacher? Is there a different curriculum? Is there a different school placement? Did, Did we move from one home to the other? Did we just lose a grandparent? Um, did was there some additional growth? The speech pathologist was so happy with the speech b- performance the other day. Things are happening. Always check for what else is happening to ease your mind that the system is creating an adaptive response to the environment all the time. So the, your actually your interceptive system is actually your landing page for that. Your interceptive system is what connects all of these experiences to the insula in the brain, which is giving you what emotional connection I can make to my experience. And when kids are developing um, and maybe also having experiencing developmental delay, very hard for them to make those connections. And, and so the only way they can really understand what their body is experiencing is by going through older behaviors again, checking in, is this going to help me still? Is this going to be helpful? Um, because they don't really have another recourse. Many of them don't even know how to spell the word anxiety, and they're not going to tell you, "Mommy, I feel so nervous today." They're not going to do that. So their behavior is going to have to sort of tell us, "Oh my goodness, what's happening here?" Also, you know, another example, Daria. Typical children that some of the, you know. Most often, they learn to say their first words before they start toddling right? And it's so, you know, so some, you know, say mama, they say papa, they say come, they say pick up, right? And they say all these little phrases. And then when they start toddling, they stop talking for a while.
0: Okay, I'm sorry, is toddling a South African term?
1: Oh, um, when they're starting to be a toddler, when they're starting to walk. Okay, okay. That's what I thought you meant, but I've never heard that term before. Okay. Yeah, I I have a lot of little, what they call modisms. Okay. It's <laughs> my own little words that I make up. Um, but then, and I, of course, I'm sorry if that's um confusing. But yes, it's when they start to walk. Okay. So As they're a,
0: working like, so hard on doing this they, that they stop, those, right. they stop speaking.
1: That's right. And they're still trying to put it all together, you know, and they can't walk and talk from the beginning. They first have to figure out what's this new thing that I'm actually upright in the air now and not down on the ground anymore. You know so um and so now they have to figure out their space they have to figure out how they're going to put the one step in front of the other it's bilateral coordination of both sides of the body so many different things coming together so f- who's thinking of a word to say right
0: and the tactile input of feeling right. their foot on the ground and are they wearing a sock are they wearing barefoot? and are they on the sand at the beach on vacation or are they on you know the uh, cement outside or in the
1: grass and 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 then and what you're doing is you you're reminding us right back to the somatosensory system that the somatosensory system is the encasing of holding this this body together as a unit. And so information that's touching me from the outside, connecting to the way that I'm moving to help me to motor plan, and then also connecting to my interceptive system so I can know how my gut feels. And how my body is connecting to emotion. So when you know, Ruth Lanius is a beautiful psychiatrist. I think she's a psychiatrist. She does beautiful um, webinars on trauma. And she explains this whole piece of the embodied self. I love the way she explains it. And again, because my OT lens is on, I'm looking at, you know, Ruth, Ruth, do you realize you're actually talking about this system? (laughs) And, and, And connecting the system to the whole sense of who am I. This is my container, this the skin here. This is my container. This is my entity and this is my separateness from you as a person. So looking at the somatosensory system, you can look at kids who are tactile defensive. You can look at kids who are not developing enough fine discrimination to use utensils properly and they hold the pencil and the fork like this, right? but you can must also always remember that the touch system is very emotional very emotional and so what you will often see is you'll see inconsistency very common to see inconsistency what do i mean by that it means that today the child is playing in the mud full body feet is in the mud hands on the mud and then tomorrow you go and you tell him In the classroom, why don't we play with paint? No, I don't want to touch paint. And you're like, what? What's different from the paint to the mud, right? So it's it's not really the messy play. It's the representational piece of the emotional system to the messy play. And so there's other things at work at the same time, causing you to think that, Well, that's just the behavior, because if he could do it yesterday in the mud, certainly he could do it today in the the paint. He just doesn't want to work with a teacher, right? No, not true. Not true. And this this demystifies a lot of people, a lot of um, children for people, I should say, because a child doesn't choose how the nervous system is going to respond. The nervous system responds because the environment is providing certain information. If the environment of the uh, is providing information that feels safe and secure, and I had a good night's sleep, and I went off to school today in a very good space, and I had a good enough nutritious breakfast, I can feel in a space where I can do things today for you, which I wouldn't have done yesterday. And the same thing in the opposite direction. So what we, what the somatosensory system, all these systems basically have the same qualities, but the somatosensory one is the one that I see is mostly connected to this whole emotional piece in a more sort of direct way. And it's because of that huge link into the interceptive system. Um, And therefore, we must be so careful before we judge. So careful what we're looking at um, and and understand that body awareness is far more than just body awareness. Body awareness is also the piece that takes you into self-awareness. And your self-awareness is physical, but it's also usually emotional. And between the physical, emotional is where we get our social awareness.
0: So I just want to point out to listeners that in the blog post for this podcast, I'm going to put links to a number of different episodes that sort of expand on different things that you've said. You talked about how um, you make meaning of experiences happening to you. I did a podcast on meaning making, although maybe in more of a cognitive lens to it, but um, I think, and and I, I did um, a couple of podcasts with OT, Robbie Levy in Manhattan um, during COVID. She talked about lots of different um, sensory activities you could do at home during COVID that work on different discrimination, all these types of different tactile things, which were fantastic um, suggestions. If parents want to refer back to that, those links will be in the podcast. But what I like about today's um, podcast is that you've taken it uh, to a step further from anything I've covered before, which is how emotional the tactile system is and how linked to emotion it is. Um, and that's what I like because sort of the theme of, of the last few podcasts have really been focused on emotion. I did a podcast with Dr. Newfeld talking about emotional playgrounds, um, how you need to work through things emotionally. And, and remember, uh, Dr. Greenspan was the one that brought emotion into this whole realm and, and the right. whole developmental individual differences relationship based model DIR floor time that we talk about on this podcast it's it's all about that emotional experience and that emotional connectedness and emotional learning so I I really like that you're you're pointing and you're emphasizing that um, aspect
1: that's and and I and you know and I appreciate that because I know that we we've we've done we talked about the vestibular system we've talked about some of the other systems right. And that it always felt to me every time we're done, like, you know, there's this one system, <laughs> that that you know, of course, there's more systems we can talk about, auditory and others. But the um, but this system is um is a is a very very beautiful system for us to harness if we're gonna get an autistic, a a child that's atypically developing, an adult that's atypically developed, um, to get them to a place of a sense of where am I, who am I, and where do I belong? So when I work with adult autistics, I work a lot, just like with kids, just in different ways. I work a lot with vibration. I work a lot with um, tactile massage. Um, of course, very respectful in in how and when we touch. Um, I work a lot with with rhythm, in a enveloped touch circumstance, being enveloped by, like you said, Lycra, um, and working with rhythmical movement in that, simply feeling from the vestibular into the somatosensory into the rhythm piece, just experiencing the body. Um and for that sometimes those sessions are very quiet, very quiet. Not putting in that that auditory and that visual that often overtakes everything else, right? But just giving the experience of the body. And if you think about your your um, you know, for the lack of a different term, your your autistic that is severely impacted by some of the symptomology that we can find in autism. Um, and they almost feel like they're always onlookers, they're always sort of in the periphery, looking in, you know, walking around the room and and they're kind of looking, but they're not really looking, right? That kind of sidewards glance that they do. Um, those autistics often also have a correspondence of low muscle tone, which also increases the possibility of decreased registration of somatosensory information. And they cannot really form a part of the group, which is why they're always on the periphery, because their sense of body is not as separated unless they put space in between. Interesting. Interesting. So important that we know this because some people look at those, at at, at those autistics and they would say, oh, but they don't look like they want to connect. Nonsense. Nonsense. Everybody wants to connect. Um, So it's, it's, it's finding the way in and the somatosensory is a huge door into those types of um, client profiles. Um, as it is for all the other profiles too. I mean, of course we use it with everybody. But I, I really I really want to give hope to those families who are in, in struggling with those situations. And sometimes we give these examples of more higher functioning autistics um, and we give a lot of um, credence to what, what kids can give us, right? And these are the kind of kids that sometimes gets lost in the translation because we're not understanding how deeply deeply they needing the connection because they can't ask for it they're not the squeaky wheels they're not causing the temper tantrums they they they're simply there right and among people say well it's just because they're autistic no that should never go across anyone's lips every person has a person inside that should be valued Um, and it's only the one who understands um, how to value that person that's going to make that that body come alive. And part of it is the somatosensory system. Yes, the connection to the other systems too. But those kids, those adults are usually the ones who are using the peripheral senses. They're using the auditory, they're using their visual to make sure they scan everywhere, but they're not using their bodies in a practical way. We got to get the somatosensory to come alive.
0: One thing... I don't know if you remember, Maud, in when I took my basic certificate course at the International Council on Development and Learning, DIR 201, you were my teacher, and my case study was I had to present me doing floor time with somebody, and I had a little girl who was a friend of my son, and she was in a Lycra swing, and she was a very active mover, yeah, And I was taking a, a choo-choo train, like a little wooden train with wheels. And she, as she was laying in the swing, I was going chuck, 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 and driving it along her back. And that's what I thought of when you mentioned it's quiet. Right. And I, she was getting that proprioceptive sense and she was getting the feel of the train and she, and she was giving me all these cues, like she was smiling and then she was, she was saying more I think she was motioning more more like and I was waiting on her to see if she would give me a cue and she wanted more and she enjoyed that so much and it calmed her right down so that's interesting because I had none of this awareness when I was doing that it was more intuitive like oh she likes laying in the swing I'm just gonna drive this little train along her
1: back and, and it was something she just loved and you know what's so exciting about what you're saying? Is that, of course, I don't remember so far back, Daria, um, because there's so many cases that comes across my the pat- video
0: is on my Patreon page. For those <laughs> who want to see it, it's called, uh, I, I think it's an example of a floor time session was the name of the blog post.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. So, um, but you know what was so cool about that? For all those parents who are watching out there and listening to this podcast, you don't need to know all this stuff, but follow the child's lead. If you're cued in to what they're giving you, and you're cued into following their interest, just like Daria did, it's almost like the gift that keeps on giving. You know, because the child will respond to this softness, to this, uh, the strength of the moment that you're providing with the presence that you are putting to this relationship. Um, And that is what they respond to, and they will give it to you without you knowing that something exists like the somatosensory system, right? This is just to give you additional information, but this is why it's so important that we follow the child's lead because they will tell you, they will limp on you they will show you the, you know, I have these tight kids that kind of walk like this, right? And then once we have them in the swing and they're swinging and we then start stroking with a very deep stroke, the body and connecting the lower body up to the upper body and they start feeling their body. And then we pull the lycra together and we squeeze the whole lycra with them. And then we sometimes take that and we create a little washing machine and we, and we, and we, and we, shove them around in that Lycra swing. And then they come out of that and they feel their bodies. And we do that with low auditory, low vision, just feeling the body. It is so powerful, so powerful. And guess what? If you do that the first time, the next time they come into your session, they want to do the same thing again. They know how good it feels. And then you keep following the lead. That's, that's the beauty. I mean, the floor time method, it's... It's like the pristine method out there. It's like the the love language, I think, of every therapist should should be the DR model language <laughs> that we use. So yes, Daria, I think that we've covered some of the parts of the somatosensory. I can't give you a whole lecture on somatosensory because that probably will take a week. But if you can just think about that the touch system is an intimate system. It's a system that gives me a beautiful place of being in this world physically as well as emotionally. If those takeaways can be there, you make me a happy lady.
0: Wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I also remember when my son was very young, I would instinctively just squeeze his chubby little thighs while he was falling asleep and he loved it. And that's that deep pressure you're talking about. But yeah, if you just touch him lightly, he doesn't like it. And I know you've mentioned that before too, that deep pressure really massages at bedtime and waking and before bed really help settle a lot of yeah. kids.
1: Massage is like my go-to, my go-to for, for this.
0: Well, thank you so much, Maude. Um, Listeners check affectautism.com. Something about touch tactile will be in the title of this podcast, which I haven't named yet, but by the time you watch this, it will be named. Uh, I'll put links to all the things we talked about. Thank you so much, Maude.
1: Thank you so much, Daria. Thank you for having me.
0: Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. Caregivers, did you know that I facilitate ICDL's parent support drop-in every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time? These are free drop-in support meetings to help support families who are using floor time with their children. Parenting a child with developmental differences can be a new challenge for some parents let us help you find the connection and joy with your child as you support their developmental process. We are here for you when you need the support, guidance, or just to share stories and experiences. Find out more at affectautism.com events, or go to the parents tab at icdl.com.